Hey there, everyone. Welcome back or welcome to The Mound Visit, the catcher's only podcast show. It feels like it's been a while, and on behalf of Chris, we've missed you. The 2020 baseball season is in full swing. Some areas of the country have been hard at it for a while now. We hope you all have been staying safe and enjoying the sun. All right, well, we are approaching the end of game number three. But first, we want to give a shout out to some of our former guests. First, to Tucker Barnhart and his wife for welcoming their baby boy, Benson. Also welcoming a baby boy, Rocco, into this world, Marlins catching coach, Eddie Rodriguez, and his wife. Congrats, Barnhart's and Rodriguez's. We also want to wish the safety to some of our former guests. Austin Hedges of the San Diego Padres, Max Stasi of the Anaheim Angels, Jan Gomes, Washington Nationals, Yasmani Grandal of the Chicago White Sox, Mitch Garver of the Minnesota Twins, Tony Walters of the Colorado Rockies, and Tucker Barnhart of the Cincinnati Reds. Be well, gentlemen. Another couple shout-outs. Congrats to Tanner Swanson and Craig Driver for making their Major League debuts. All the best. Let's now get into the eighth inning. We sit down with 20-plus year veteran Major League Baseball executive Bill Guyvet. This will be a two-parter, so let's get going with part number one. The book is called Do You Want to Work in Baseball? Good title. Bill Guyvet, former Major League executive, uh, most recently with the Colorado Rockies, is our special guest today. And um, all right, Bill, so explain, because I, so many kids now are coming out with, with good degrees of education um, in finance, mathematics, economics, and they say, how do I get started? How do I get into a Major League club? What's the basic thing that you would tell them? Well, the basic thing I would say is you better be passionate about this job. Because this is not a, you know, a job choice. It's, it's a life. And anybody that's worked in professional baseball knows that very well. And there's a lot of punches in the stomach along the way when you work in this racket. But I think that's what's critical because the people that are passionate, truly passionate about working in baseball, are the ones that are going to be successful and go through all the downtimes that you need to do. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Mound Visit, the catcher's only podcast show. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Goodrow. And with me, as always, my other co-host, Chris Snooze. We are switching it up this week. We've interviewed current and past form, uh, MLB catchers, MLB catching coaches, minor league catching coordinators, future Hall of Fame pitchers, our great partners with All-Star Sports, and now we are moving it over to the front office to interview our first baseball executive. Please let us welcome to the mound the author of the book, Do You Want to Work in Baseball, Bill Guyvet. Guyvo, thank you for taking the time. How are you doing today? Oh, great. Be on with you guys. You kidding me? What are we talking about? How does it get any better than that? <laughs> well, again, we appreciate you hopping on here. I know this is going to be a very unique show for us. We've never interviewed somebody that has been in the front office that has seen just how baseball works at that, that uh, element, you know, the business side of it, um, as well as you've worked in, in um, player development as well. And so I know we're going to dive into a lot of that. So it should be an exciting show. Typically, Guybo, what we do at the beginning of all, all of our shows is we have what's called kind of like our lightning round. We call it for our catchers, our rapid fire blocking drill. And for our pitchers, our PFP drill. But for you, since you're a baseball executive, we're changing the name up for our summer meetings hot stove. And I'm going to ask you the first question here. And do you think that we're actually going to have a 2020 MLB season? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, I've just been on the phone with some guys that are working in Major League Baseball the last few days. And one of the comments I think was appropriate 
because of the concerns I heard was that I think we can pull this off. So when you ask me, I'm kind of right in the middle. I, I don't know. I think some people think they might be able to pull it off. But when you're trying to pull something off, it doesn't sound like uh, there's people with a lot of confidence in what's going on. But I would say that um, for me, I think because of the financial aspects and all the money involved, I think they're going to do everything they can to play. So, I mean, one thing is for certain that I know about Major League Baseball, whether you're playing or not, players' wives buy diamonds. So... I'm going with that one. <laughs> you know, every player's got bills. Every owner has bills. They all have bills. And at some point, if you're in the business of baseball, you better be playing baseball games. So I think they'll do everything they can to play. Um, and I'm pretty confident that it'll, it'll happen. Awesome. All right, shifting over to me, my first question is going to be, who is the first trade that you pulled the trigger on? The first trade? Your very first trade, yep. You know, I'd say the one that uh, I was uh, directly involved in that I had a lot of say is when we got Henry Rodriguez to the Expos, probably in 1995, mm -hmm. I think that was. And uh, he ended up being a great player in Montreal. People loved him there. And they had the O. Henry bars, those old candy bars. Yep. And, and uh, that was a big one. And when you, you know, it's difficult when you put your, your name on a player. And that's the thing. Any, any fan can sit there or any guy sitting at a clubhouse can pop off about this trade, that trade. But when you actually have to make them, you know, that's a, that's a different level of intensity that you have, a different level of investigation and study and research into these players. And it's a, it's a difficult deal. And I don't think players are, I shouldn't just say players, but just people that don't have to make those calls. I think anybody that's made trades, it's like the old scout saying, old scouts will say, hey, you don't laugh at mine and I won't laugh at yours. <laughs> and it's the same kind of saying of the players that they signed. And it's the same way with trades. You know, you think at the time, especially because usually you're trading for a need. And anytime you get into a need, basis with a limited applicant pool you get in situations where you may not make the best decisions but at the time you really need that to help bolster your club all right Guyvo, my my next question or my next hostile question for you is what was the worst release you've had to make i guess maybe not so much the worst player that you had to release but more or less what was the situation like what what was the the tension the feeling like about the guy that you released and what was his reaction to that I don't know that I have one particular one. You know, I, I've probably, uh, because of all my years of, of being a, overseeing the minor league department, and I always felt it was really important for me to do the releases. And it was just me and the player in the room uh, for the most part. There were times where I might want somebody in just to maybe go through some things or whatever, but typically it was just me and the player in spring training. Obviously I couldn't do that at all our cities. Mm -hmm. but I would do it uh, in spring training. And I felt like the player was owed that from the guy who's the head of the department. And I don't know that I ever had anything that I would consider bad. Even when I was a, you know, younger farm director, go back like 1994 and 
30 years old and I'm telling everybody I'm going to do these releases by myself. And the, the older coaches and managers couldn't believe it. They're like, hey, what if a guy goes up and tries to take a swing at you? And I said, no, nobody's going to do anything like that. And, you know, I'm rooting for them all. In fact, earlier today, I talked to a player that I had released, and I'm helping him with the project that he's doing. But to me, once you're in the organization where I'm at, you're one of the fellas. So it's going to work out in professional baseball. It's not going to work out for you. But for me, you're one of the fellows and you're always there. It's just, you know, the way things transpire. The big leagues aren't for everybody. And that's really the, uh, the circumstance that you get involved in. It's nothing personal at all. It's just how you stack up in that particular moment of time with all the players around you. You just hear all these horror stories and of of people getting released in spring training. One one in particular that I remember was that the person didn't even get past I think the minor league complex and his stuff was in a trash bag outside. And I heard that one. I'm like, gosh, this is a ruthless business. Who wants to be involved with it? But then again, you have the passion for baseball and you have the whole. Well, I'll tell you what, though the the interesting thing is that we can bring that up now. But at the time, that was pretty standard. Just because you got in a lot of situations where players would get released in the morning, wouldn't have a flight until the afternoon, and would go in other people's lockers and steal stuff. Yeah. So when people bring that up, you tend to focus on that's you know bad thing to do to the player. But at the time, when I first started, that was standard. I mean, that's what they were doing, and we stopped doing it. But it was something that had gone on for a long time. And there was a reason for it because, I mean, you know what it's like when you're playing the minor leagues, you don't have a lot of stuff, especially back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody had really agents back then in the minor leagues. You didn't have gear and people sending you bats and gloves and, <laughs> and, uh, oh, I, that's why I stopped wearing Oakley sunglasses. I had two, Two pairs swiped in like three years in spring trainings where I'd walk in and they'd just be gone. Yeah. And I remember with the Phillies, they would wait until, oh God, <laughs> you'd be in, you'd go through your stretching and people would be lining up playing catch. And all of a sudden you'd see the golf cart come out and they would just pull out, look at a guy and a farm director and the field coordinator kind of just give you the, Come here, let's go for a ride. And yeah. that was all you saw of them. That was the old story when I was with the Angels. You know, they used to, Joe Madden was one of them. They'd stand over by the gate. And so when the vans pulled up and they'd bring you in, you know, we got all the minor league guys in the morning, you know, and I got a pop collar, mm -hmm. my little Burmese shorts on, and I'm walking in. And you're kind of looking because you don't know. And the old story with the Angels was like two years before that, some guy was walking up because they'd pull you out as you got off the van and then run you right into the office. So it wasn't that bad as a golf cart. And somebody, I heard the stories about somebody doing this and with the Reds. Yeah, that was, uh, I'm trying to remember who was our farm director. Don Blassingame was our field coordinator. Can't remember who the, the farm director was at the time. But I always made sure after we saw that happen once, my very first spring training, from here on out, when I was playing catch with somebody, I made sure I was walking. I was the guy going out in the outfield because they only came along the line. Yeah. So now here's a, like, here's let me finish up that angel story. But I, I guess a couple years before I got there, 
there's the old story about this guy was coming up and they were trying to get him. And they were saying, hey, you got to go. But he saw they're like pointing at him. So he went running across the parking lot. So they couldn't get him. <laughs> like that was going to save him. That's what he but that was a story we used to just crack up guys would tell that story unbelievable but here's the thing i would tell all the players when i i would uh you know get into releases and there's a bunch of scouts out there i've released you know you got to remember now 21 years in the front office probably i would say 17 of those were where i was releasing players in spring training of either major or minor league club and making decisions on who's playing on what team. That's a lot of players and a bunch of them are scouts now. And they, they tend to remind me of that. But what I will tell them is that I would tell every player is don't let a bunch of old guys in a meeting determine your fate. Don't let a bunch of guys sitting around. I've been the one guy I can remember when we were in Tampa Bay and doing the expansion. There's one guy I thought should be on the major league club. Not one person in the room felt like he should be on our major league club. And when they, he ended up with another big league team, they claimed him off waivers. He goes into Tampa, he saved three games in a row, and he tipped his hat to Tampa's dugout. And I was like, and people are calling me going, oh, man, you're right. He just shoved it on. And so I said, hey, that's what I'm trying to tell you. So I've been that one guy, but I would tell players, don't ever let a bunch of guys in a room determine your fate. Don't ever let one manager, one coach, one college coach determine your fate. It's in you. It's for you to do. And maybe things don't work out here or we don't see this and we don't see that, but that does not mean we are correct. And that's the message I would try to send if a player was going to tell me he was going to continue to play because it's the truth. There's a lot of release players running around the big leagues. So my next question, whenever we were in the locker room getting ready, <clears throat> oh, so-and-so might be popping up, and all of a sudden you'd see someone walk in, nice-looking khakis, got the shoes on. So, Bill, were you a, were you a tie guy or were you a polo guy? Uh, if I was at the big league level – for the most part, like through the Dodgers and whatever, it was a tie guy. Um, but I was at Dodger Stadium every day. It's a little bit more formal there than with some other clubs. Uh, when I was with Montreal as a farm director, I had to, I had to go out and get pleated pants. You know, I didn't really have. I mean, maybe if there was like somebody was getting married, I had to go get some clothes. I was a area <laughs> scout. I was a college coach before then. You know, maybe I had some khakis and a blue blazer you know that type of thing you show up everybody wears but um i'd say for the most part with them i they would my nickname was pleats they would call me pleats these guys they think they're funny but you remember i was 30 years old there's a lot of guys when i'd go to ottawa or triple a club or run around the international league and there's a lot of guys i played with even when i was scouting for the yankees i was doing the coast league and there are guys that i played with or against and they were all ripping me. And I was telling them, you should see my report on you. I'm just buried. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever think the Yankees are trading for you because I'm hammering you. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's uh, – that's, I think it, it all depends. But, you know, I've gradually seen from the GM meetings in, like, 1994 to – 
the way it is now. And it's much more casual than everybody at the scouting and farm director meetings was suited up with a tie pretty much. Definitely a jacket. Uh, now you go to the winter meetings and you know, guys are wearing sweats and whatever. It doesn't, it really doesn't. It's just a reflection of society. I mean, everything's more casual nowadays, but uh, it's definitely not like it was. There was a formality to Major League Baseball. You know, Lasorda had the best line. He, he told me that, because we would always, Tommy and I would, would end up going to the park a lot. He lived in Fullerton and I was in Yorba Linda. So we had a long drive. So if we were on the same type of schedule, we'd go together. And I'd drive over and then we'd get in his big old Cadillac and we'd take that up to the stadium. Um, and Tommy had a good point because, you know, he asked me, Are you, do, you, do you like wearing suits? I think, yeah, I don't mind it because it's, it's easy to get dressed, right? You got your, <laughs> you got your pants and your jacket. All you got to do is pick out a, a tie and a shirt. And that's easy for me. It's not like the old gar animals where you got to, you know, you never know if I got to pick out a pair of pants and some shorts and a shirt, what's going to happen. So this is easy for me, Tommy. And he said, yeah, he goes, just remember something. Whenever somebody's meeting the assistant GM of the Dodgers, that's a big title. So they need to see you like that. No different than they see me. When they meet Tommy Lasorda, they need to see me in a suit and da 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 because I'm not managing anymore. And, and you know, it's kind of it made sense a little bit, right? You don't want to meet somebody that is like working for a big league club and he's wearing holy jeans and, and whatever else. Although that seems to be those seem to be expensive nowadays, right. <laughs> but that's the um, that's the kind of thing. So you know, I always kept that in mind. Whenever you're going to the ballpark, you're representing the club. Even back then with the Dodgers, the scouts got a, a, a clothing allowance. Mm-hmm. So if they had, I think I can't remember exactly. I think it was like twelve hundred fifty dollars, where they could make sure that they were dressed appropriately because they're representatives of the ball club. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff's kind of gone away now. You see a scout with a team, half of them. I don't know if they're going to, you know, some college class. Maybe they got a graduate class and they got a backpack <laughs> and all this other stuff. I don't even know who these guys are, half of them. But, uh, and certainly not dressed the way people used to dress in the past. But I, I think it's just time's gone by. Everything's a little bit more casual. All right, I got to throw this one out there. Um, your best call-up story, and, and I'm going to preface it for you because I, I spoke to, to Brian Watley, who you know very well, and he said, I need to ask you about the F.P. Santangelo call-up story. Oh, geez. Well, that's in my book. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, I don't, everybody shame- else here. Oh. I don't want to shamelessly plug my book. Got mine right uh, here. <laughs> there it is. Do you want to work in baseball available on Amazon? Or on my I'm website. driving, so I can't hold mine up. So, <laughs> or, on, or on my website, InsideBaseballOperations.com. <laughs> Again, InsideBaseballOperations.com. Now, FP was a, that's a good story, and I detail it in the book. Um, I even had to call FP during that during that, uh, when I was writing it, just to make sure I had the correct picture that he was facing and part of the story. Um, but it was, uh, it was interesting. You know, it all started well before, um, 
you know, getting there. We had a, an article in the Montreal Gazette where Jeff Blair works in Toronto now, the sports writer, but he was in Montreal covering our club. He was our beat writer. And there was an article in there from, you know, an unnamed source that we didn't feel like we had anybody in AAA that could help the major league club. And so guess where my next trip is? <laughs> it's to it's to Ottawa to make sure that the uh, all the fellas in there aren't going to try to kill anybody or go on strike or whatever, which seemed to be uh, what everybody did back then. We're not going to play, you know, that type of thing. So I go in there and Pete McCannon is the manager. You know, Pete, longtime major league coach and, and manager just recently, mm -hmm. a couple years ago. He had great. He had great hair, by the way. Oh, tremendous hair. <laughs> I got a story about Pete, too, that'll crack you up. But we, um, I get there, and Pete is just nervous, and I don't know if we can do it. I don't know the bill. They're, they're out of control. Everybody's all pissed off, da-da-da-da-da. I said, all right, let's get them all in the training room. Let's go. Get them all in the training room. I'm going to talk to the whole ball club. And now I'm sitting there going, oh, geez, what am I going to tell these guys? Because – you know, they just got ripped in the paper, whatever. And, and so when you don't know exactly how you want to organize a presentation, here's a good tip for you. Just start asking questions. So I said, hey, fellas, what's the problem? And then they just start, they unload everything. So now I know I got everything out on the table from their side. Now I can come back. And I start coming back with, hey, look, we just, I just got done with a call that, you know, we're going to need somebody pretty soon and da-da-da and why and this. And I had five, six guys that I said can help our major league club right now in this room. So if you don't think anybody thinks you can play in the big leagues, I'm standing here right now telling you I just did that a couple days ago. That six of you guys, I don't know, I'm not going to tell you which six. But I think there's six of you guys that right now can go up there. Some of you might need a little more time, but I think you guys are ready to go. All right, fine. So now I got through that and everything's okay. So I go out and back then I used to throw batting practice. And, you know, the guys used to love hitting off me, the triple A guys, because then they felt like, okay, if I hit him good, then that means something, which <laughs> I was just trying to get the ball to the plate and survive, to tell you the truth, and stay behind the screen. So... After I get done throwing, I'm standing out shagging on the left field, and F.P. Santangelo, who's now the color broadcaster with the Nationals, F.P. comes up. It's actually F.P.'s, I want to say, at least fourth year in AAA. I think it was his fourth year. He was finishing up his fourth year. He's going to be a six-year free agent and uh, never got a shot. And so FP comes up and he's trying to tell me about how he's the best double switch guy in the National League. I said, FP, you're hitting 243 in the International League. How are you going to be the best guy in the National League, in the big leagues? No, no, no. I can do this. I can play the infield. I can play the outfield. I can play center field. I can play shortstop. So first of all, you're going to have to get a lot better at standing on the dirt for somebody to think you can play shortstop. And then... Uh, as far as the outfield, that's fine. I'll give you that one. But a switch hitter, nobody's going to bring you in to hit right-handed. You're going to be able to pinch hit, hit the left-handed, but nobody's going to – you can't pull that switch hitter thing on me because nobody's bringing you to hit right-handed. Right 
oh yeah, this and that, and that. I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm the best. And the whole time I'm sitting there talking to him, I'm looking at him going, you know, this guy really believes this. I don't believe it, but he really believes it. And what the whole story is telling me that he had confidence in his ability and what he could do. And that to me is the foundation of being a good player is you're confident that you can do this stuff. So we get in a spot a couple weeks later where we need 25th guy in the club. Tim Spear caught one in probably, a, uh, I think it was near a vulnerable area of the, of the male anatomy. And so it's going to be a couple of weeks where he can't play. So I said, okay, fine. That's Tim was our third catcher, tremendous defender, tremendous defender. Could catch it with the Jim Tracy say could catch it with a pair of pliers. That's how good he was back there. And so, and he could really throw, but you know, uh, offensively kind of probably kept him out of, of uh, big time starting role or something like that at the big league level. Well, anyway, he goes down. We really don't need a third catcher. Let's just bring up a guy as the 25th guy in the club, da, 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 da. And so we get to that point and uh, Felipe Lou would like this other player. And I say, you know, the guy that needs to go is FB. FB should go up and he can play. He could be your 25th guy. He thinks he can be a double switch guy. I'd like to see it. I'd like to see him at that level because he's got a lot of ability. He's got the ability to play there. It's a matter of performance. And if it's not really a playing spot, this guy's been in our organization a long time. He's won championships at lower levels. He's been in AAA. He's a great guy. He's a team chemistry guy. He's all the things that, that we uh, profess to find important. Let's bring him up. So we did. Felipe really wanted the other guy. So what am I going to do now? is I'm going against the big league skipper on who's going up and telling him who's going to be on his club. So at the end of the game, I go into Pete McCannon's office, the manager, and the door's closed. And I'm like, what the heck's going on? So I go in the coach's room. I go, what's going on with Pete? He's not, because I'm going to tell him FP is going up. I already met with the staff early and just get an update on all the players, but I didn't tell him really what was going on. And so the coaches tell me, oh, he's got FP in there. FP struck out during the game and he broke every light on the way up to the clubhouse. <laughs> I said, he broke every light. This is the guy going, I'm supposed to tell he's going to the big leagues. And I'm, especially at that time, I'm like, you can ask, you know, Cliff Floyd, some of these other guys, I'm a stickler for every rule. If, you know, I would make up rules just so we had some rules. And so now, after he breaks all these lights, I go, well, I got him. That's not going to affect our decision because we're talking about the big league club and what's going on, but I'm going to get him. So as I'm standing by the door, Pete is in there. He's just blasting. He's blasting FP for breaking all these lights, and he's finding them, doing all this stuff. The door opens, FP tries to walk out, and I said, no, no, no. Get back in there. And FP just puts his head down. He knows, you know, I'm going to get him. So I close the door and I sit down and I start going through the, you know, the typical farm director guy broke some lights kind of speech, you know, about 
how some janitor working at the stadium's got to fix all this. People have to take time out of their day to clean up after you. And you have no sense of, of what's going on, right, wrong. You don't care about other people. You just think about yourself. You know, what about all the people that got to fix all this stuff? Da, 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 da. I'm going through it all. And I'm just time. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm running. I'm trying to run as much time off the clock as I can. I'm trying to make this as difficult for FP. I'm, I'm just going through everything of why he disrespected people. And then I told him, and um, I said, uh, you know, Pete, Pete said he'd find. I said, all right, Pete's going to find, but here's what I'm going to do. For the next month, I want you signing autographs right after batting practice for 45 minutes. You're going to sit out there down the line and you're going to, we're going to make up a little booth for you and you're going to sign autographs for every single fan that comes up for the whole month. And I can't remember. I think it was like August, but the whole month of August, you're going to be down there doing that. And let me tell you something. I got people here and I'm going to have a spy watching you. And just as I say that, I look at Pete and, and Pete McCann and the manager's looking at me going, I can see him thinking, he's going, Bill's got spies here watching me. You know? <laughs> he's, like, he's, he's wondering if I, I just started laughing. But I'm telling FP and I said, so now i got to go back through the whole thing and I'm going through and the fine and this and that. Finally, FP, I've, I've got him to the point where he breaks. Bill, I got you. I got it. Okay, I'm fine. I'll sign auto I'll sign all the autographs you want. I'll da 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 da. And I look at Pete and I go, hey Pete, by the way, tomorrow night, FP can't sign autographs. And Pete looks at me and he goes, Why is that? I said, because he'll be in Montreal. And FP looks at me and just starts crying. You know, he figures it out what I'm saying. And then and Pete was like so surprised because he's a triple A manager. He doesn't know if a guy's, <laughs> if a guy's going to <laughs> or if I have spies around there watching them. And so then, but I tell FP, I want you there at noon. And he goes, noon? The game's at 7.05 or 7.10, whatever it was. I said, I want you there at noon. I don't want anything screwing this up. I want this to be where you're the first one there. You get with John Silverman, you get your uniform and your locker and everything. I want you hitting in the cage. I want you running around that stadium. Because he had told me he'd never been there. And I said, well, then I want you there at noon. Da, 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 da. So now he's all upset. He's got to be there at noon. I said, FB, let me tell you something. If you're not there at noon, I'm going to have issues with it. And I'm going to tell Skip, get this guy out of here as soon as you can. And he said, all right, I'll be there at noon. So FP goes up, Montreal gets there at noon. I'm sitting there, I'm supposed to be at AAA in Ottawa. And I said, there's no way I'm staying here. I'm going up there because Felipe, <laughs> he's, first of all, he's not happy with me. And second, because he wanted a right-handed hitter with power, and FP's not a very good right-handed hitter. Bill, who is, do you mind me asking who that player was that he wanted? There was a guy we had by the name of Yamil Benitez at the time. I hate bringing that up just because uh, he ended up getting to the big leagues anyway, so it's not that big a deal. But um, so now I go up to the stadium about 2 o'clock. I get into Montreal, and I go over the stadium, 
and I see Jerry Manuel, Jim Tracy, Joe Kerrigan, all the coaches, and they're just looking at me, shaking their head, going, oh, man, <laughs> they heard what happened, and they know I'm on it. And I then so I walk in, and Felipe's at his desk, and he looks at me, and he goes, I knew you'd be here. I say, hey, Skip, I'm going to tell you, this is, you know, this kid, he's, oh, yeah, because he had managed that being enabled. So he really didn't care, but he thought the other player would be better. And he said, okay, I want you to see something. So he's making out the lineup card for that night. And he writes in in the nine spot, Facero, Jeff Facero, which people don't even know how good this guy was. Mm -hmm. Facero was legit. We had Pedro and Facero and Ken Hill and all those guys a year before. But we still had Facero. He writes him in, and then he writes in the eight spot, Santangelo. I went, oh, God. I go, Skip, this guy hadn't even been, he's never even been to Montreal. He's never been on this turf, which is harder than hell, and never played in the, never even taken batting practice here, and you're putting him in? And he goes, hey, look, I drive up every day to the stadium, and I say hi to the guy running the parking lot. And so I talked and stopped to the guard, and he told me, who's this Santangelo guy? He's been here since noon. I'm playing him. He's more ready than anybody else I have. I, went, oh, God, I just killed myself. What am I doing? And so now we go up there and I find out because um, Chris Hammonds is pitching the left-hander and FP is not a good right-handed hitter. And I'm sitting there going, you've got to be kidding me. And here's the thing that people don't see. They see a guy get called up to the big leagues. They get, this and that. They don't know about the people behind those decisions that have to make them like we were talking about with the trades. So now I'm in this spot where I'm, I'm so nervous. I go up for the game in the press box and FP, he gets up and, and uh, I can remember, I think it was the second at bat. He gets up and there's a runner at second base with nobody out. So he's got to move the runner to third. And I'm just sitting there, just FP, just make, just dribble one somewhere so that this guy can at least get to third. And he lashes one down the right field line, hits first, head first into third or triple, scores the run and uh, stands up and he gets a standing ovation in the big O stadium, the old one in Montreal. And, and uh, from then on, I said, okay, I can breathe again. <laughs> well, the good the good thing about Faith and Hammonds, I played with Chris. Chris probably only threw about 80, 86, 87 on a good day. Yeah. So he wasn't. Pretty much. He sit on his changeup. <laughs> pretty much. But either way, FP went on and played, you know, a bunch of years with the, in the big leagues, and, and it was all good. But there's another one where a guy is, you know, bouncing around. He's a triple A for four years. And, yeah, it's a whole deal of being a player. Mm -hmm. Player is a tough racket, man. People turn on the TV and think it's great, and those guys are a lot, a lot. It's like a punch in the stomach every day to be a player, in my mind. And there's a lot that you got to go through, a lot of adversity, and nothing. I don't care how good you are, how talented you are. It's never easy. And there's a lot that you have to deal with if you plan on making that a career and playing in the big leagues. So I got, I got to ask you here then, <clears throat> since we're talking about Montreal now, the team they had when there was a strike, was that, I mean, they were looking like they, that should have been a World Series 
champion type team. Was that one of the best teams that you've seen on paper, just as far as lineup from one to one to nine there? Well, yeah, I mean, I got to see him play. So the pitching was, I mean, people don't know. I mean, that at the time of the strike, we were seven and a half games ahead of the Braves. And, and that was what, the end of July. So I think that was the date anyway, but um, a really interesting team. You know, I went over from the Yankees to the Expos and I can remember staying in Pittsburgh right before the strike and I'm with the team on the road and I'm sitting there and looking at them in the clubhouse and I'm, I've, you know, I said to myself, where's the varsity? I mean, holy cow, these guys were not, they were, you know, the Yankees, we were trained to go out and look for big guys, and big, strong, hairy guys, you know, and, and uh, when you looked at the Major League Club of Montreal, it was a speed team. I mean, people forget that even, like, Sean Barry could run. I mean, Barry, there's Will Cordero, but you had Moises Alou, who was, uh, you know, very athletic, Grissom. I mean, Larry Walker was, I mean, still to this day is my, probably my favorite player to watch. All-around game. Defense, tremendous base runner, could throw, was an eight runner. Unbelievable arm, too. Ooh. Yeah, it was, he had sevens and eights. That's all he had. And people don't know how fast he was. And just an instinctual base runner. I mean, he was really, really fun to watch, but... It was a great team, but that pitching, man. I mean, come on, Pedro and Ken Hill and Butch Henry. and So they were asking me at the time, and I'll throw this out there, because he was a younger guy at the time. It was Kirk Reeder. You guys remember him? Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. So he's the fifth starter on the team. And so they're going, you know, what do you think of Reeder, and should we try to trade um, – for a, another starting pitcher before the playoffs. And I'm, I'm looking going, okay, the guy's like seven and three. He's got a two something ERA and he's pitching against uh, Pittsburgh. I'm watching him. I, I don't think he's missed a spot the whole time. I don't care how hard he throws. He's throwing 88, but the guy is just dotting everything and they can't hit him. So I walk after the game, I walk in, you know, the coaches and everybody's there. And I go, I don't know what you guys really want. I mean, maybe we can go get another number one or something like that. But this guy's really good. And, uh, and obviously, you know, we kept him whatever, didn't make any trade in the strike and all that happened. But um, that team had really pitched. The interesting thing about that team was how athletic they were. And how they could run, except for Fletcher, obviously, catch it. But um, no left-hander in the bullpen. But Tim Scott and Mel Rojas, before he got to Wetland, closing, those guys were dominant against left-handed hitters. You know, both had a, like, split-change deal. And, uh, I mean, lefties couldn't hit them. They are both under 200 against lefties. So there's no reason for a left-hander with them when you had right-handers over that dominant, which the way I was taught from a foundational aspect, building a club, building a bullpen, totally went against that to have all right-handers out there. But when you looked at the effectiveness of right and left, 
you certainly didn't worry about it because when those guys came out, Tim Scott was going to come out there throwing upper 90s with some kind of some type of split or whatever that thing was. And then Mel Rojas, same way, you know, mid 90s with the same thing. Yeah, it was, yeah, the lights were turn off the light, this thing's over, man. And then you get to Wetland, that's your treat for getting past those guys. You get this guy coming out there. <laughs> So that was a, a tremendous team, athletic team, an athletic team, and uh, with just great pitching. I mean, people don't know how good Facero and Butch Henry, I mean, these guys were Kirk Reeder. Yeah. You know, you could probably look at, you know, three of the five stars being left-handed. Um, and then no lefty in the bullpen. So unless you're going to, you know, pinch hit and, you know, that type of thing. So you flip the lineup around and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Why it plays into, uh, you can lead the league in ERA. The people don't, you know, the, today's game, it's so focused on one player against this matchup and that. When you look at the, I think the composition of a team as a whole, and go back to, okay, they had three left-handed starters. What's that mean? What's that mean to a manager in the opposing lineup is he's going to try to pinch hit and do whatever. And then they're bringing in all these right-handers out of the bullpen. Mm -hmm. And still get, there's a lot going on there for an intellectual person to, to dig into that some of these stats and what we do now tend not to play into it. Um, you know, I've had players complain about who's hitting in front of them and who's hitting behind them and blah, 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 blah. And players to some degree would get it. But as far as the composition of a pitching staff from starting to bullpen and how all that works together as its own entity within a team, I don't think people really focus much on that at all. So... <clears throat> I know we talk about team composition, building it, and you've been around, you know, numerous and building teams. I want to talk about, you know, we're a catching show per se, right? We've had pitchers on and, and um, you know, we've had MLB managers that have been catchers and whatnot. What does it look like for you as a farm director um, and, and an assistant GM being in the front office of how you're scouting catchers? And then what's the rigorous process to put them through in player development to, to try to get those guys that are maybe higher in draft picks to get them to the big leagues quickly? What does that look like from that standpoint? Because I think we see it, we assume, hey, you know, you had Buster Posey. I mean, he was fast-tracked to the big leagues. You have Adley Rushman, who was the number one overall pick in last year's draft, who is probably getting fast-tracked to the big leagues. Now, Baltimore has been decimated uh, they're not a very good club. I think they're rebuilding, but what is your step in doing? Oh, that? don't think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to think about it. Right. Um, I, I, and I guess, you know, when you go in and you attack a draft, are you looking at, and this is probably a, a too long-winded of a question, but when you go into a draft and you're scouting players, are you looking for one particular player? And when that guy's off the board, what does that look like for you? Or are you just saying, okay, what's my best available here? And then what do I have looking out for the, the next, you know, obviously they're, they're decreasing the rounds moving forward, but 
when you were doing, you know, what, 50, 50 rounds at that point or 60 some rounds? What does that look like? Well, I think that where clubs get and where they really make mistakes is they draft for need. First. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're going in looking to draft one position, you've limited the players available to you, right? And so that's the problem in doing that is that a great player at the big league level will always have more value to the major league club than one player at a particular position if you end up getting a lesser player. I mean, the league is a, a league of, of, of the exceptional. These are exceptional players. So you have to be able to, in a draft, find the exceptional players. And if you're limiting to one position, you're probably going to somehow not find the exceptional, right? Because you're limiting the entire board to a, a narrow swath of it. I would say this, though, in any player, no matter what position, and I'll get to catchers in a little bit, but you're looking athleticism is the common denominator. I don't care what anybody says. And you can see these guys catching in today's game now. I mean, as low as you have to get to be able to handle things from, you know, horizontally and the, and the break that they're dealing with, the late action because of the increased velocity and increased late action. I mean, athleticism is just always going to be the common denominator no matter, no matter what position. So where you get into uh, trouble a little bit because you want to see an athlete behind the plate is that a lot of catchers, because they've been catching, part of it can be slower and not run as well. And certainly a 60-yard time is some gauge of in people's minds of some type of athleticism, right, to have the athletic coordination of your upper body and lower body to propel yourself for a longer sprint over the, the resistance of the ground is some, some degree of testing athleticism. And with catchers, you see a lot of guys that are very good, what I would call top half athletes. And they may not run and they may not whatever, but they better be flexible. Because, if, you know, if I'm going out and some guy's sitting up high and whatever, I'm looking at him, this guy's not flexible enough to catch those fellas that we draft. And they start winging it in there, man. What's this guy going to do? You know, he's 18 years old and he's wearing those things behind his knees and he's sitting up high. And come on, man, get away from me. This guy ain't catching for the next 15 years. Can't even handle it right now. <laughs> so that's the thing for me is that um you know athleticism is always important athletes good athletes get better they can improve good athletes can play when they get hurt a little bit right they get hurt they get tired they get whatever they can still perform right and get better and that's the whole thing of when you're looking at any player um and even as it relates to catching you, you need a good athlete. Then from there, you know, it is all defense. I don't care what anybody says. If you're looking to figure out who the catching candidates are, it's all defense. I mean, if you're going out to a field 
and I don't know any of the players and I'm watching them, but the guys that are wearing all this, you know, chest protector and mask, whatever, I'm just looking at them defense. Mm-hmm. They can go hit a couple homers and do all the stuff they want, but if they can't catch and throw and handle themselves back there like a leader, then, and, or people don't feel like they have the intelligence or the focus on what's going on there to be as Felipe Alou would call it, the assistant coach on the field, then they got no shot. And there's, I'm sure there's plenty of catchers going, well, I hit 400 and I did this and I did that. And this guy got drafted. Well, yeah, he got drafted because he, he's a, in people's minds, a tremendous defender or a tremendous future defender. And that's all people want, right? The field's the same for everybody. If you play in the middle of the field, you got to play defense. If you play in the corners, you got to stand on the corner, lean on the pole, right? You better produce an offense. (laughs) That's how it works. Mm -hmm. And that's how people put a team together. And so if you're playing shortstop center field, and I was just talking to one kid that, uh, you know, that I deal with in, in our company, and I told him yesterday, this is, I mean, for him to get over the hump and to be what professional baseball scouts want to see, it's going to be his running and his throwing, that people can believe that he can play shortstop. And I said, now let's go through your routine of what you do during the day, I wanted 60% at minimum defense, 40% hitting the ball at the top of the cage like all you guys do nowadays. Okay? 60% defense. And for a catcher, it's probably even more. But here's the thing on catchers that they wouldn't even – the first thing I would do, because I would go around and watch maybe the top 100 and – 25 players for the draft every year guys that we had interest in in the top rounds and then whoever I saw that was later maybe later in the draft I'd see them too and I could sit there in the draft room and try to lobby for them right but um, I would go up to the coach there's a lot of the college guys I'd know or whatever anyway and I'd say hey tell me about your catcher if I was there to see a catcher so they'd start talking And that's all I'd ask. Very innocuous question. If I didn't hear leadership, if I didn't hear toughest guy on our team, Mm -hmm. if I didn't hear is great with the pitchers and has a relationship with every pitcher, if I didn't hear that stuff, I just, hey, thanks, coach. Good talking to you. Because if I have to ask, then we're looking at the wrong guy. Because that should be the first thing coming out of his mouth. Hey, guy, well, this guy's a leader, man. This guy cares about his pitchers. This guy's passionate about how they do. This guy knows every pitcher. And when they're in a, uh, in a bat where we need a ground ball and need a double play, he knows how they can get that. He goes to the mound when he's supposed to go to the mound. He knows them all. He knows when they're in trouble. He knows what to say. He knows who to be hard on. He knows who to be their friend. This guy is awesome. I can watch if he can catch. I can watch if he can throw. That's what I want to hear. And that's the so thing I, for me, the catchers, I mean, they're missing the boat if they're not digging into that stuff because that is truly their brand, right? I mean, I talk about that in the book. What's your brand as it relates to getting a job? 
Well, it's the same way with the player. What's your brand? What do people say about you when they show up and ask? What's a coach say? Does he say you're a hard worker and or you're a tough guy and you compete? You're a great competitor? Do they say that? Or do they say, oh, you show up late every once in a while and you know, we don't know if you're gonna be at practice and da 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 da. I mean, you're building your own brand of what's gonna happen later when some old fat guys are trying to make a decision on whether you can play in the big leagues or not. It is what it is. So, so with that being with that being said, with the way that the game is right now with a lot of the front offices, where you see a lot of guys who are <clears throat> behind the scenes, who are making decisions, who are saying, let's take this kid because the numbers show this. You know, guys that might not have, you know, taken a ball off the cup, like we talked about before, that they don't understand, you know, the leadership role or, hey, this guy has got a, a real persona about him where he can, he can go out and calm somebody down. The little things that don't show up on a, on a statistic sheet, you know, so I, I guess what I'm asking is how much would you take into consideration on what a scout's gut feeling is? You know, someone that you trust that's played the game that has been there that say, look, this kid reminds me of so-and-so because of the leadership qualities, not, oh, big bump, not from the kids that say, hey, well, you know, his hot zone is this and he's really good on, on stealing a slider for a strike because that's what the numbers show. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think you're looking at it as if somehow the guys that work with data operate in a vacuum. I mean, they're all in an organization, right? You got managers, you got scouts. I was talking to a guy that runs one of the analytics departments with the major league club yesterday. And I was telling him that the issue that I see that I worry about a little bit is that if, if I'm trying to make a decision and I'm talking to a scout, I want the scouts opinion from a pure scouting standpoint. If I'm talking to a stat guy and a data guy, I want a pure data assessment. And if I'm talking to the trainer, I want a pure medical assessment. I don't want the scout trying to be a data guy. And I don't want the data guy trying to be a scout because you're not good at it. So you're trying to compromise maybe what you feel using the data. And in today's game, I see that going on. That, and I, it's probably a lot from people that don't, if you've got to make a decision, you want to know that guy's bringing a specialty of data and analysis. I want that. I don't want him trying to judge his arm and do No, that's not your deal. Stay in your lane here, pal. I need a pure data assessment on it. And don't let that guy affect what you think. In the same way with the scout, I want a pure scout assessment. And that to me is truly how you make decisions. If you have a bunch of people running around trying to do everybody else's job too, I don't know how that's effective. I really don't. I, I think you muddied the water in trying to make a real good decision on a player. But these, you know, a, a guy that works in statistical analysis I don't think they should be taking that into consideration. I think that's for other people to take into consideration. I think the manager has to or whatever else. And then the scout and the data guy, whether it's in a draft room, like maybe you're talking about, then they argue it out, fight it out. 
And you know what? You have to have some basis of knowing the language of both to have a productive conversation. But I think there's a conversation to come up with the end in what's best for the ball club. I don't think you just, you know, it's, well, the data says this and we're just taking this guy, period. I think some of that might happen later on in the draft or maybe in today's world where you're signing a guy afterwards. But I mean, for me, I, I, I just, I don't know that that really happens. I don't think there's an organization that says this, we're just going strictly off the data and we don't care about the scouts. I think that's overplayed and uh, by scouts and other people and the media. Um, yeah. I just think because of people, I mean, I've watched all this transpire, right? I mean, we had, we basically had bubblegum card stats when I started in the front Okay. That's all we got. Hits, runs. I mean, Joe Kerrigan and I used to try to profile players by their stats. We would hide the name from each other. And I'd say, all right, Joe, here's one. He's the one that started. I shouldn't say that. And he would say, all right, look at these stats. Tell me about this guy. And all we had was ground ball fly ball, basically for pitchers. ERA, ground ball, fly ball, and we're trying to figure out who it is. And I'd say, okay, National League, American League. And he'd give me, let's say, National League. And I'd try to figure out what pitcher it was. And I could see, okay, this guy throws a lot of five fly balls. So he's a four seam. He's got some strikeouts. So he's probably a curveball guy, hard curveball. You know, he's got some kind of late action, whatever, pitch there, out pitch, because he's striking out a lot of guys. And he's got a little bit higher walk, so he's probably a big arm guy, too. And then that's how we would try to do that. No different than they try to do it in reverse and kind of, you know, pitch modeling and everything else now. And it's, I mean, no different. We were just limited by what kind of access to statistical information. That's all. And now they have all the, I mean, they can tell you how long their toenails are. <laughs> but yeah i don't i i think the organizations maybe because baseball has held back and stuck to this old school we're not changing blah 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 for so long that what and you believe me i used to be one of those young guys who wanted to do things differently and everybody's yelling at me too so i i still have some scars from that but then you get what happened was it suppressed for so long that the dam broke. And now you got all the data stuff and you got all the analysis and you got all that going on. And you know what? It's being force fed to people yeah. or it was. And I think now it's kind of settling down and finding its equilibrium. And through that, I think you have a lot of organizations that are much more healthy in terms of their decision making now. And a lot better than it used to be. Yeah. And that's hard for some, you know, longtime baseball people to see. But if you're truly in it to make the best decisions, then you'll find value in in all this analysis. So see, I don't know I'm, if that answers it, but <clears throat> no, that's huge. No, and so now you have going into baseball, all these rule changes and technology being brought in to assess players to maybe find some faults in them where you're trying to improve them, whether it's 
redefining a pitch, you know, pitch shaping or pitch adding to their pitch arsenal, things like that. Now, from a catcher's perspective, again, you know, our show where we, we kind of attack the catching position, you got this automated strike zone that they're toying with a little bit. I think some organizations are doing it right now in their summer camps. And then the talk that they're bringing in or they're removing track man and bringing in this Hawkeye technology that is used in tennis and I think football and a couple other sports. But how do you think that changes a front office's perspective on scouting the catching position? Now that we're, we're, we're taking away, sorry to interrupt, but now we're taking away, you know, where we're able to account for the, the way this person receives the pitchers, right? You know, and I had one scout tell me one time, he's like, how can they even do that? The umpire changes every time behind the plate. How are they able to quantify somebody in the receiving? He goes, it's a hogwash, you know, statistic. I don't even like it. But how do you think that changes the overall uh, a scouting perspective in that realm? Well, it definitely takes a little the edge off of, you know, how this guy receives a ball and all the data that you have on, you know, near strikes and, and what's going on um, as far as that goes, because there's obviously guys, you have the kid in San Diego on here who's the best in the business. But, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think that takes it, that kind of knocks him down a little bit as far as, you know, is that truly important or not? The thing that I see, though, is that you're still – there's still going to be a level of how you receive the ball. There's a lot more going on than just, you know, you can't be clanking it around back there mm-hmm. and guys are taking bases or whether it's pass balls or whether it's your blocking or whatever, you're still going to have to have somebody who's a great defender and then being able to receive a ball to be in a position to throw it to. I mean, there's so much still going on there about how you receive the ball and how you catch it and your consistency of doing that, that you've just taken one little narrow aspect of it and taken that out of it, if they're truly going to go to this. I mean, I think the technology has got to improve a lot before people are going to, you know, players are going to want their careers decided by this thing. Because I know they tried it in the Atlantic League, and I talked to one of the coaches who was back there. He said it was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Balls bouncing up the plate, there were strikes and whatever else. So, yeah, if that technology can improve and also be adjusted for different heights of players, that's what I worry about. Mm-hmm. You know, truly, where is the top of the strike zone with everybody? Right. Even when I watch on TV, I mean, is that accurate or what are we doing there? So, um, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. And I think it takes some off it as far as receiving, but I still think, again, we're looking at it from a catcher. There's still that pitcher that likes throwing to this guy. Yeah. Because he can catch the ball and he sets up well and he does all those things. Their catchers are still, even with that, still going to be able to, to have value in other areas that people appreciate. So those few pitches or whatever it is a game, yeah, they're important, especially important now. And maybe they're not as important, but there's still a lot more going on there. And that goes back to what I was saying, what, you know, if I'm asking about a catcher, this coach better be talking about 
you know, all those things that, that you guys talk about on a regular basis as far as being back there mm-hmm. and handling a pitching staff, really, really important. I mean, I, I wish all catchers could think that way because, I mean, if you're going to turn your whole pitching staff over to a catcher, that guy's got to be one of the, the boys, right? He's got to be one of the group there. Right. That they're in there with them. And a lot of catchers think you go out and hit some homers and every once in a while catch a pin. And if this guy didn't throw strikes and gets lit up, no, there's catchers ERA too. People I keep track of. And then there's conversations with, you know, even me when I'd roll around as a farm director, I don't care if you're an eight. Why do you like throwing to this guy? I know. You like throwing that in there? Yeah. So you ask. And try to get a feel for that of, of what pitchers are comfortable, especially in an environment like Coors Field. Mm-hmm. I mean, that catcher has got to, you know, you're going to be half sports psychologist, half whatever <laughs> in Coors Field. You better be, you better be really in with them. You got a bucket of water on on your hip where you're dunking the ball every time so the ball doesn't fly anywhere, right? <laughs> hey, look, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel like, though, that there's guys that might be, I don't know, borderline, hey, you know, we might release you, but I'm, I, I guess, well, let me start that question over then. So you got a guy like, say, uh, uh, Nolan Arenado. Not to say that the guy's defense goes to shit over there, but let's say there's some guy coming up. Maybe you can revitalize somebody's career or keep him going. Where you put him behind the plate because he's got an absolute hand cannon. I mean, would you think that major league teams would look in that direction if they can handle the ball somewhat well and can hit? Well, those are, you know, there's a lot of converted guys that are back there catching. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, it's just not a tryout deal. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of just trying a guy out there because he can swing the bat a little bit and he can throw. But I think if you're basing it off, you know, this guy's got the type of flexibility and glove. You know, he's got the hands and the, and the flexibility and really the, the durability and toughness and intellect to kind of handle the position, then fine. Yeah. Let's see what he got. But if you're just going to try a guy back, I mean, those – We've all been there. And, oh, yeah, they're going to make him a catcher. And then they never give him an opportunity catching the games. And he's down there catching bullpen. I mean, come on. Um, I mean, I'll give you one story. It's in the book as well about, I mean, took a first-round pick, last pick in the first round, or second to last pick, whatever it was. Because it was in 95 after that 94 team. And we took Michael Barrett as a shortstop at Alpharetta, Georgia. And I go see him beforehand, and, you know, I mean, to me, he was a good hitter and a good athlete, play shortstop. Our guys probably thought if he had to move off short, he'd go to third. We get in the instructional league, and I'm going to bear down on him because I think he's a guy that to really have the type of impact at the major league level, he need to catch. Right. And I was a little worried about that. Would he be, especially in that day and age, truly – if we're going to be a championship team, is he going to have enough power and really offense to be that corner player that you'd want at third base, much like an Arenado or something like that, right? So, um, 
the last day of instructional league, I make him a catcher. But it was after careful watching him. I told the staff like a week before, let's watch him. I don't want anybody talking about it. Let's watch him and see if, you know, I kind of went through the building a club, getting players ready to, to compete at the major league level. If we're going to do this, we need to do it now. I'll wait until he's in AAA and whatever. We're going to do it now. And uh, the staff all agreed that they thought as far as the big league level, that's where his future would be. And, uh, you know, guy ended up playing you know, however long he did in the big leagues. I don't know what it was. But I was with the – I left the Montreal one with the Dodgers. And we were playing the Expos in spring training. I was walking out. Some guy's yelling at me after the game. And it's Barrett. You know, I'd seen all the guys beforehand, said hi and whatever. And he comes up to me in the parking lot. And he said, guy, well, I just want to let you know. He goes, at the time, I really didn't know what you were doing. I was a little unsure about being a catcher. He goes, but after getting to the big leagues, he goes, I figured out what you were doing. You were guaranteeing me 10 years in this league. And I said, yeah, it's pretty much, Barrett. Don't forget it. And I walked away. <laughs> but, but it was truly how you profile positions and profile players and trying to put them in the best spot. Davey Johnson used to say that all the time. If we're doing what's the best thing for the player, then we're doing what's best for the organization because the organization will have better players. And that's truly – and the, the, your players are your inventory, right? It's like in any business. That's truly your inventory. And, and that's all it was, trying to put him in the best spot. So the, the issue is – and I took a lot of heat for that now. You got a first-round pick shortstop that was a Gulf Coast League all-star shortstop. You're making him a catcher, and I'm getting hammered from wherever. But, you know, I can honestly tell you later on in my career when I had kind of balls to do that, I don't know that I would. But I was just, you know, young farm director and bold enough to do it back then. Now Mike actually, Mike actually went back because I came over to the Expos <clears throat> halfway through the season in 99 and I got sent up to Ottawa and Mike came down from the big leagues where he was playing third base. And then yeah. he got, you know, he's like, uh, the Brickster was up there. I don't know if you remember John Brick, who was our clubby. He's like, Brickster, well. I need some, I need some catching gear. So, uh, you know, he came down and I played against all those guys all coming up, you know, when they were, when we were in, um, you know, whether it was in, Eastern League or in the Florida State League so I, I knew all of them from playing but Mike was Mike was that Mike was the third baseman came down and he's like uh he's like Snoozy I'm joining you now so you know I'm gonna go ahead and you know I gotta figure this stuff out again I was doing it and then I was off and then I was doing it and now they want me to catch so he went after, down and yeah after I about, him, they tried <laughs> to play him at third so that a lot of that was need too yeah but just I mean from a hands perspective like his hands were just so soft. I mean, whether he was just playing catch or someone was throwing, if you got Guillermo Mota throwing, you know, 98, 99 miles an hour with us and, and he, Mike would just sit there just nice and easy and, and relaxed. And I think one of the things that, that helped 
um, not only myself, but Mike and also, uh, you know, Brian Schneider, is we were very fortunate yeah. in spring training of 2000, Montreal had signed Charlie O'Brien. So we got to literally, <clears throat> I mean, we probably pissed Charlie off just from the amount of, we were like, you know, like flies on a turd. We were always hanging around him and watching every bullpen and catching next to him and studying this, studying that. And going forward, that whole setup of letting the ball come to you, not really moving, just being wide and big, you know, that's where you see guys of that kind of era. That's where everyone kind of mimicked because it was the easiest way to do it. You know, yeah. and Mike, Mike's hands were so soft that, you know, he would, it almost like he'd catch a ball barehanded. It came in, you know, when you're throwing, doing drills with like tennis balls, that's how it looked no matter how the velocity was. So, yeah, well, I spoke with Mike probably about a month ago. We're, we're trying to get him on the show as well. He's just very tied down with the family and with everything else going on. But yeah, Mike was, uh, Mike was always a guy that, you know, extremely humble and just had a lot of tools and it was just a, a kid you'd watch and just be like, man, it's, you know, it's really nice to have a teammate like that and go and say that, hey, I, you know, I, was, I was fortunate enough to play with him and, you know, got to pick his brain and, and play around and do some stuff and figure things out together. Well, you can see that, though, the decisions made, you know, a lot of the things you're saying about him, that's how the decisions made. You know, good guy that can get along with the pitching staff, smart guy, you know, intellectual guy, so he can think through issues, remember all the game plans that you're going to do with each hitter you know, all the things that go on to that, let alone the physical skills of being able to catch a ball, throw it, and then play offense at that position. You know, relative to that position, he fit in great. You know, and that's the, that's truly the thing of trying to, you know, when you're going to make a guy or thinking about making a guy a catcher, I will tell you right now, though, when you're in the draft room, those catchers are flying off the board. So... There are very few people out there that people have the confidence in that they can play defense at the big league level behind the plate and can handle a staff and be there for pitchers and do all the things that you need to do. And so, and if you could swing the bat a little bit, and those guys are just flying off the board. Answer this question for me, Guy, but why then are so many catchers underpaid? Is it just because you, you typically have the primary and then you have the, the backup? Is that why? I mean, because it's such a large task to, to handle like what you just described there. Why are some of these guys underpaid? Well, I don't, I don't know that's, I mean, I don't think anybody's underpaid. <laughs> <laughs> I am, well. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody's underpaid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'd have to look at it. I mean, relative to that, I don't think that the, the, the people that, that have that catcher and feel that, it is, I think it's probably more of a longevity thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you're going to say that the, the point of regression for a major league player's performance is going to be 31 years and seven months or whatever they come up with now, and then from there it's going to tail off. It's such a physical demanding position that you're not going to see a 32-year-old catcher sign a seven-year deal for, you know what I mean? They're kind of taken right. out of that. Right. So you go through the, the, 
the time of where they're locked up with one team until they reach free agency, you're just not going to get into that spot unless it's, you know, huge offense like Posey. Right. right. So I think that's probably part of it is if you take the whole group and say these guys are underpaid to first baseman that can stay around until they're 40. I mean, that's one of the things I was talking to an analytics guy that I told him in the terms of regression theory and how they kind of go through, through things now. It's the age at which the corner players, the decision for big market clubs is not the decision of one player start going south. They do. But corner players in terms of offensive production really don't go south that much when they're on the field. They still produce offensively. And they still have power. It's just they break down and they get hurt. So their availability is less. So what is the optimum number of games to be played as a mid-30s player? That's what I think is probably more beneficial for clubs, especially big market clubs. They're going to pay a lot still for those players. You know, what is it? That's truly the decision for the analytics guys when they're doing all their aggression stuff. What is the optimum games played? And an everyday player now is not 145 games anymore. You know, an everyday player. I mean, what's a everyday player for a catcher? What is that? You guys would know. Shoot, I was a backup. I was every fifth day, so I couldn't even – if I had 30 games, I was happy. <laughs> well, I mean, at the big league level right now. Well, yeah, those guys are what? Probably going about 114 in that area? Something like that. The highest ones, maybe. Yeah. 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 Or if you go like with the Nationals did with Suzuki and Gomes, those guys are basically splitting. And well, that's what I mean. At, we're talking yeah. about what well, we're talking about their their salary as it relates yeah. to the position, and an everyday catcher is probably in the hundred ten games, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So it's a you know it's all relative. I don't think anybody's picking on catchers. <laughs> I mean, you guys get your chip off the shoulder, you guys. I know what this channel is. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, that concludes part number one of our two-part series here with Bill Guy Vet. We want to say thanks to all of you again for tuning in. Remember, please stay safe, stay tuned, and we'll catch you real soon. Yeah.